Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by author Matthew Karchner. Matthew used to live the gay lifestyle until he met Jesus Christ in the year 2010. Now, him and his wife are missionaries. Right now, they're over in Cambodia. So we're going to talk to Matthew about all that he's doing for the kingdom as well as his book and any other projects that he would like to talk about. So, Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start off by kind of giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself? I'm from a small town in central Pennsylvania and about three hours from any big city. Grew up there and um, had a motorbike at a pretty young age, kind of a dirt bike to ride, ride in the countryside behind the house. And that comes in handy nowadays over in Cambodia because the mode of transportation most people have is a little scooter, motorbikes. So I have a little Honda motorbike over here, which is uh, nice to have that background. We, we think of the way that the Lord works, that he doesn't waste anything and uses all things to his glory and our good in the end. So um, I grew up in a Christian home and accepted Jesus at a young age and went to Christian school and in the youth group and dad was an elder and treasurer in the church and uh, parents were leaders of the youth group for a while there and just very well churched, memorizing scripture and, and a lot of church activities. But around 12 years old, felt an unusual feeling that, that I couldn't control. And I was attracted to the boys, not the girls. So that was kind of when the boys are chasing the girls around. And I felt like I wasn't part of, I wasn't, I kind of felt inadequate from a pretty young age. I was pretty meek and gentle. And when it was time to play kickball and baseball, I felt like if I got in there and, and played with, with the other kids that they would see that I threw like a girl or ran like a girl or something. So it kind of, uh, isolate and eventually started to be friends more with the girls that I felt I could relate to. I would try to play with dolls. My mom would take them away from me. And there, I remember a lot of fear in my younger years, intimidated by masculinity, by other, by guys that were kind of overly uh, masculine and sporty, for example, and, and would really feel inadequate in, uh, I remember hiding behind my dad's leg during church or something like that. Anytime we were out in public, somebody wanted to talk to me when I was really young. So I was just kind of naturally pretty gentle. So when the, the strange feeling hit about puberty in my early years, 12, 13, 14, 15, I remember starting to cry myself to sleep and, and kind of at first being in denial and then starting to kind of deal with those feelings and praying that the Lord would take that, those away. And the temptation didn't go away. So late, the later time went on and the more the hormones were raging in those teen years, I would take baby steps out toward that temptation, that attraction, looking at magazines and that sort of thing and pictures and then movies and kind of whatever I could get my hands on. 
So it was one of those things where you open the door to something, to pornography, and, and sudden, after a while, this isn't really enough, and you have to graduate to the next step. So like I said, it went from uh, maybe an underwear catalog to, uh, to pictures and then videos, and that wasn't quite enough. So then you get into higher levels of pornography, deeper addiction. I went to Pittsburgh, the nearest city, to go to university about 19 years old and was down there. Nobody knew me and I could do what I wanted. Finally got drunk for the first time. And after that really felt like, wow, now I can finally do stuff that I never had the guts to do before, the things that I had fantasized about. And so I went out and started doing those, kind of living a double life. I would get so drunk that I wouldn't remember what happened and kind of pretend like it didn't happen, be in denial about that for a couple of weeks and then do it again and just kind of gradually more and more and more until finally I was really um, out in the gay life and shared with my friends, my closest friends after a while. And then eventually my family, quite a few years after, I was about 28 at that point and lived with a guy down in Washington, D.C. And they initially took it well. They, I mean, from my perspective at the time, they were concerned about what I might do, that I might hurt myself or something. So my dad made a point to call and kind of put a Band-Aid on the, the situation and tell, them that they, tell me that they loved me and, and that sort of thing. The first, when, the, when they first received the letter, my coming out letter, and then probably two or three weeks later, I would hear from them periodically then, and they really were honest with me, especially my dad said that, you know, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We don't, we believe what the Bible says. We do not endorse or condone what you're doing in so many words, kind of like, this isn't who you are. This is sin. And so uh, they went to war and prayer and fasting, and that was a pastor's counsel to them. And I think it was, it was a matter of a number of years after that point, maybe four years roughly, until uh, the Lord had been kind of gradually working in my life, reminding me of Entan's prophecy, the scripture I learned as a kid that he's coming back in judgment. I wasn't ready. I remember 9-11, waking up out of a drunken stupor, turned on the TV, and there are the Twin Towers going down, and I just started sobbing, crying realizing that the Lord was bringing judgment on my country for turning their back on him. And I had done the same thing as my country and, and certainly wasn't ready to meet him. So it was really a wake-up call, but it, I was so far in my pride and my sin that I, I w didn't turn back then. So he, there would be a little bit of time passed, something else unusual would happen. And one, another example is that he sent a, an evangelist, a street evangelist, across my path down in Pittsburgh. So I had moved around a bit, Pittsburgh to Boston to Washington, D.C., and then back to Pittsburgh for my job. And I was back in Pittsburgh the second time at this point and went to McDonald's one day. A street evangelist came behind me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, where would you go today if you died? And and that was really, that for me, that was the most memorable wake-up call aside from 9-11 because it, it was a realization that someone else was involved, that not just my family. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, wow, so here I am two and a half, three hours away from my hometown. This guy doesn't know me, doesn't know my family, doesn't know anything about me. And somehow 
he's drawn to me and all these hundreds of people at lunch, lunch break, kind of rush hour time here in the city. So that was kind of the beginning of a thought process, I think. And it was a uh, May 28, 2010, when it really kind of all came crashing down. I was, had come home from work and it was a holiday weekend. So I had that Monday off. Someone was coming to spend the weekend with me. I had never met, but had met on the internet. That was that was the way of my life and, and the way for many people living a gay lifestyle, whether they want to admit it or not, that's very common, especially for the men. So um, he was on his way and I was on the floor doing sit-ups to, to get ready for his coming and, and trying to present myself well. I was very severely addicted to alcohol and drugs at that point and cigarettes and still tried to, tried to kind of paint a picture of somebody who was who had things going for him and, and tried to look attractive and whatnot. So I was doing the sit-ups on the floor. I just remember the a tightness in my chest, like the Lord was trying to reach me through end times prophecy. I remember earthquakes in diverse places and the interpretation of some end times prophecy is one world bank at the end that there'll be one world bank and things like that were going through my head. I, I was working for a bank at the time. So the idea of one world bank during uh, right after the financial crisis, I was doing bank integration work, and it, it was really uh, reminded me of of those that interpretation of end times prophecy. So that was going through my head. I was thinking, I'm I'm running out of time. I'm I'm really addicted. I know this isn't going anywhere. I'm I don't know how much longer I'll be alive because I was doing cocaine and um, having heart palpitations and bleeding uh, inside from stomach ulcers from just drinking just in self-destruct mode and so satan from the other side there on the floor was i could just you know feel that sense of like you've gone too far and the guilt and everything i had hurt so many people and done so many horrible things that it just felt like just like a pile behind me like i could never overcome it and then the lord uh, pulling from the other side it, it it sounds maybe unusual the situation but it really felt like satan had me by the throat on the floor like uh, and then the Lord's there yelling, I can get you out, but you have to surrender. You have to repent. And then it was as if I hollered uncle. I just remember either saying, okay, out loud or in my spirit. And it was, it was like the chains broke. We call it the burden of sin. Um, I would also refer to it as the demonic in my case that I, I felt a demonic presence lift from me, like a, a, a bondage kind of presence. And the first thing that I did, it was such a real experience that the first thing I did was stand up and look at myself in the mirror, look at my face in the, the mirror there at the uh, dresser. And so I looked at myself in the mirror and saw a genuine smile on my face after so many years of, of addiction and, and really needing to, to get drunk before I truly felt at peace, before I felt any sense of true happiness. And um, so that was all counterfeit. And at this point, I could look at the smile on my face and see, wow, this, I, I feel like a whole different person. So I got on my knees at the bed later that evening and gave my life back to the Lord. I remember the sinner's prayer roughly and prayed the sinner's prayer to give my life back to the Lord and praise God for second chance. He, my temptation did not go away in that moment. And I still, I still have that temptation, to be honest. But 
I received the peace that passes understanding in that moment. I could sleep that night without alcohol or drugs. Um, I knew that I was forgiven and washed clean in the blood. I knew that Satan had no power over me, that the alcohol that I had been just walking in, in like a circle of addiction and sin for so long, I was really uh, disabled in a lot of ways in terms of uh, couldn't do basic things that other people could do. I was so chained to the bottle and uh, so overcome with anxiety and depression. If you said, uh, can you go down and get us a loaf of bread, Matt? I would go down to the grocery store and I would follow men around the aisles like a true sex, sex addict. Uh, I might be there for two hours getting a loaf of bread because that's how addicted I was. It was just debilitating. So praise the Lord. He set me free from that. I had about a two-month walk-off period, I call it, the, even though you know the chains are broken in your mind, but the, the human habit is still there. And I really kind of wrestled with that for a couple of months. Like, what do I do when I get home from work now before I drank myself to oblivion? and watch pornography and all kinds of stuff, tried to find someone to have sex with. And the Lord really, after those two months, the, that walk-off period when I truly put the bottle down and the pornography and the uh, sexual interaction with men and the cigarettes and cocaine and all that by the Lord's power, it was just amazing what he did in my life. But after that point, he really started to reveal my new identity in him and what he had the gifts he's given me, what I'm to do with them, why I'm here, really. And so well, before we go into that, let's talk yeah. about <laughs> the question I have is what what first made you have these temptations growing up in a church home? What made you get those temptations in the first place? Well, many people that I knew out in the, the gay lifestyle that I would talk to just the firsthand or secondhand experience kind of thing would say that they were sexually abused as a child. In my case, I was not. My theory, and I think it's rooted well in, in the word of God, is that it's, it's very much a, I mean, I know it's a demonic, it's a demonically inspired temptation. It's something that I believe that, that Satan comes into the schoolyard and attacks folks when you're, you're interacting with people and I'm in touch now with ex-gay ministries and through online sources and that kind of stuff. And you see a lot of this within church environments where somebody's the son of a pastor, son of a missionary, and you would think, why in the world would this happen to them? And actually, if you think about it, it makes more sense because Satan's coming after the one that the Lord would want to use. And so I don't say that to inflate my own ego or something, but I'm, I'm saying that that of any Christian household, we were just a regular Christian family, but the enemy got to me somehow, whether it was through fear. I remember having a lot of nightmares and, and afraid about things and, and the fear about inadequacy. And I got bullied quite a bit as a kid and stuff like that. I think I just, it, psychologically, if you get into the psychology, and I try to steer clear of that. I try to stay on the on the Bible, on the Word of God, and not the human psychology. But psychologically, they they kind of say that that on some level, it's kind of envy. You you're made to feel in some way, shape, or form like you're inadequate. You're not enough of a man, and you start to look at other men and make an idol of them. 
Like, I want to be them so bad, or I want to get close to them so bad just to feel that mas masculinity or to be approved by them in some way. So I like to stick with the word of God. It's a spiritual war and, and it's not who we are. It's just a temptation. Like anybody else has a temptation to lie or cheat or steal. And we are not a liar or thief or cheat unless we go and follow that temptation. So I'm confident based on scripture, it's not an identity. It's not who anybody is, just a perversion. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now and, and how you became to be a missionary in the work that you're doing for God. So that was 2010, May 28th. I gave my life back to the Lord and then the two month walk off period. And I was already in the church, even uh, right from that first Sunday, I guess it was May 30th. And uh, so I started ushering and, and working in different ministries and children's ministry and that sort of thing. And I would walk my dog in the park in Pittsburgh. I lived right near kind of an urban park. There would be homeless folks in the park and prostitutes and that sort of thing. And um, the Lord really started to put that on my heart that I, I wanted people to know about him. He had done so much in my life. And so he started to train me to share my basic testimony. And so it was kind of like trial and error, just, just, uh, <laughs> as he would lead to people in the park is really how it kind of got started. I really, that was such a big part, became such a big part of my identity in Christ is witnessing. I felt so on fire for the Lord and so, so much joy in him. And I knew who, knew who I was and why I was here and what I'm created for and started singing in the church. So, so we'd get up and share a testimony about what the Lord had done in my life that week or that month and then sing a song to praise him. So I, the Lord really established that identity in him. And, and from there it felt like, okay, I've been in this bank at that point. It had been 10 plus years by the end. It was almost, it was about 15, but um, it was like the bank work didn't mean anything anymore. If you know what I mean, compared to, trying to win souls to Christ, what's really important that the, any of us could die at any moment, the world could end at any moment, the Lord could come back and think of all the people that aren't ready. I still had friends out there that I, I was had kind of had the sever ties with, but I still had a heart for them and wanted to see those folks come to Christ. And I just wanted to do the Lord's work. So he really impressed that on me, gave me the heart for people. I knew based on my old life that the, when I shed a tear about somebody's salvation or wanted a friend to come to know Christ, I knew that it wasn't my tear, that it was his because just a few months prior in my old life, I couldn't have cared less about anybody else, didn't even care about myself. So he made it clear that I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. I'm nothing special and to give the glory to him and and he worked from there. So I got into a church and uh, they had a Cambodia partnership where they would, a group would go to Cambodia about once a year and partner with the church and go into churches, share testimony and help and kind of look around for maybe possibly moving there for a mission at some point for a longer term. And um, through that, the Lord started to work in my heart. And long story short, the company that I worked for a bank down in Pittsburgh 
had been with them almost 15 years and they, they had a diversity and inclusion program. It was PNC Bank, actually. They had a diversity and inclusion program that was really from, from the top of the house. But our, the head of our department was really kind of championing it. And it sounded great at the onset. It sounded like equality and, and that sort of thing. But when you got into kind of the fine print of what they were doing, it was really promoting the lifestyle that I almost followed to my desk. And I couldn't do that with a clear conscience. So the Lord, long story short, the Lord led out that way. And then I prayed for what to do next. I was an Uber driver, a Lyft driver for a while, probably about two, two or three months. And that was kind of rapid fire evangelism training. And the Lord was saying, Cambodia, Cambodia. So I was really seeking him, prayer and fasting and and he made clear. So I connected with the folks that I knew in Cambodia over here. Uh, one guy had a school that he had started not long before. He connected me with the local Baptist church. And, and so I started, I came over on that note, just kind of independent missionary. Uh, no big plan, just following the Lord. So tell us about what Cambodia is like and how receptive people are to the word of God over there. Uh, Cambodia is a developing country back in the 1970s. You might know some of this already. There was a kind of a Hitler-style dictator here called Pol Pot. And he rose to power and, and convinced folks that he could take them back to the former glory of the Angkor Empire, which included Cambodia years and years and years ago. And so he said... He could do that if, if everybody followed him under this kind of communist ideology, kind of following after the Chinese Mao Zedong model. And so he said, we need to cut off all the, any connection to the West and move everybody out of, away from technology out into the countryside. And we're going to work the farms and, you know, live in kind of a commune type of thing. And things are going to be much better. And he had evil intentions deep down. He slaughtered about a third of his own people. He was targeting people, anybody who was, who, edu who was educated that he thought might rise up against the regime. So anybody even who had eyeglasses would be seen as possibly intellectual. That's, that's his, how they were classifying certain folks, the targeted Christians, even Buddhist monks and, and folks, anybody that they felt, I guess, would be influential and could possibly rise up against them. So it was a real horrible, a horrible genocide, a horrible demonic period in the country's history. Now, um, many years later, the doors opened in the 1990s, the UN came and, and um, a lot of organizations, a lot of like nonprofits, they call them NGOs, came over like the Red Cross and that sort of thing. And so there's been a lot of humanitarian relief and it's been quite a few years since. At the moment, there's a lot of Chinese investment, so a lot more development than there had been when I first came here in 2016. Um, they look over toward Thailand as kind of the model for what they want to be, because Thailand is further along. It's more, more developed in the capital city. They have a, a SkyTrain that takes you from place to place and an underground subway and all that sort of stuff. And Cambodia, because of the tragedy of the war and everything, they're so far behind in terms of infrastructure and, and transportation and, and highways and all that. So they look up to Thailand because it's a neighboring country with Buddhism, similar, uh, same religion, 
and similar food and similar ways of doing things, similar language. And so it's kind of like the older brother or the cousin. They look up to them. And Thailand is really a hub for gay culture, for LGBT culture. It's uh, Bangkok, you might know, is kind of a, a sin city, a well-known hub for prostitution, human trafficking. And so um, as they're looking up to Thailand and continually developing more and more, LGBT culture is becoming more and more approved kind of slowly but surely here. So um, the, the mission here for me is to, to go out and share my story with folks. We, uh, the Lord leads in interesting ways in the marketplace or go to the grocery store and my wife needs something at the grocery store, for example, and, and we run into somebody there. Once we have kind of a connection with somebody, then I just try to check in if they're willing to hear. It seems like they're, they're kind of open and I try to check in pretty often with them to, to follow up. And it's, it's really a long way out of Buddhism. It's kind of like going to share the gospel with someone from the LGBT life. It's such a deep-rooted um, nowadays, especially, it's a deep-rooted sense of uh, false identity. And the same thing is, it's pretty similar with Buddhism in terms of, I am Cambodian, therefore I am Buddhist. It's about 90, I think 96% of people they estimate here identify as Buddhist. So it's really a matter of almost like Catholicism back in the US. If your family's Catholic, then you are Catholic and cannot change. And, and so, um, if you're going to witness to somebody who's not only Buddhist, but also identifies as LGBT, it's kind of two massive, gigantic mountains to climb. <laughs> so it's not easy, but the Lord leads to be faithful. And we've had some, we've had a little bit of fruit, trust in the Lord for more. The, it's easier with children's ministry and when you're in a developing country where that's kind of been war-torn and that sort of thing. And the first thing that, that people do when they see that you're moving into their village or their, their town, their area, is to say, you speak English, when are you going to start teaching my kids? <laughs> because um, English is seen as the language would, would get somebody a better job, a brighter future. And so that's how the Lord has been opening doors. People want to know English. Even if they're an adult already, they, they would like to know English. And you can kind of use that as a selling point. Like, I'll teach you a little English if you, if you listen to, to what I have to say about Jesus. Right. So tell us about your book and any other projects that you're currently working on. Okay. Thank you, sir. Straight is the name of the series, and I wrote a book in a couple years back now called Straight, An Ex-Gay Prodigal Story is the name of the first book, and it's really a testimony starting in early childhood and ending with that May 28, 2010 date, that repentance date, and then there's a little bit of an epilogue after there, but it's kind of early childhood to repentance. And then straight to just recently finished that one uh, a couple months ago. And it's called Straight to Ex-Gay Adventures in Christ. And I was really terrified of a lot of things, 
maybe that's too extreme of a word, but I was really fearful of a lot of things, a lot of fear in my past life. And the Lord walked me through a lot of fear breaking related to witnessing and just standing in front of people, Toastmasters, public speaking course kind of thing, where you, you join a club and the idea is to break your fear of public speaking, break your fear of what people might think, that they might think that my gestures look feminine or that I talk soft, softly or something like that. Uh, skydiving, scuba diving. I was terrified of heights and terrified of deep ocean water. And especially at night, I felt like that was the, the worst way someone could die would be to go down in a plane like that movie Castaway where the, the plane goes down and then maybe you're surrounded by sharks or something. So um, the Lord led through a lot of fear-breaking, what I call faith-building, fear-breaking missions over the past number of years since 2010. And um, so it kind of starts out with the beginning of that and then moves forward into coming over here to the mission field. And when I met my wife in Thailand, and that's kind of the climax of the story, it's really a lot about witnessing sharing sharing your faith with other folks across cultures and i think it can be um, encouraging to anybody who feels especially in this day and age where we live in pretty tough times and maybe you feel discouraged about haven't heard from the lord and just want a kind of an encouraging story it's kind of one chapter per adventure so you could read a chapter a day for example if you wanted so go ahead and throw out your contact information if you have any websites or any social media links that where people can get in touch with you and purchase your books. Thank you, sir. Um, xgaywitness.com, E-X-G-A-Y-W-I-T-N-E-S-S.com, xgaywitness.com, E-X-G-A-Y-W-I-T. N-E-S-S.com. And that has a link right on the front page to our ministry site, which is castawayministries.org. But you can click from that ex-gay witness page to there and, and see our ministry page. It also has a link to buy the book on Amazon.com. So everything kind of flows out of that page. There's a way to contact if you need, uh, you have a question about something about my testimony. Maybe you have a, a family member struggling with homosexuality, I'd be happy to answer questions, try to help and pray for you. So in closing, speaking of that, what advice or what final thoughts would you have to somebody that was in your situation? I think the most common thing that our culture now, especially American culture says, uh, kind of preaches to us through the media and Hollywood and TV is that uh, baby, I was born this way, that if my, that's a, the song from, uh, what's her name? Lady Gaga. But they, that's kind of embedded in, in all the media things that you read nowadays. It'll, it'll say in one way or another that your temptation, whatever your heart feels, is who you are. And the Bible says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says that the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, so we must repent, turn away from following our deceitful hearts to follow Christ. So everybody, even the most cleaned up person on earth, the best known pastor or 
someone who really appears to have it all together, has sinful thoughts and wants to do bad things. We have a sinful nature, so nobody uh, is without sin here on earth. And that doesn't mean that um, we have to follow those feelings because I wake up and want to lie or, or cheat or something doesn't mean I'm a liar or cheat unless I follow that. So it's a daily war. It's a spiritual war just because the temptation hasn't gone away. Maybe you've already given your life to Christ and still wrestle with that temptation. And maybe people are saying, well, that's who you are. Just accept yourself. And the Bible says, no, that's not who you are. That's a perversion of God's design. That's coming from the enemy and goes well with our sinful nature. But we can repent and walk in newness of life and read the Bible every day, pray every day, get into a good church, get into service, find out who we are in Christ and walk in newness of life. Not easy, but the Lord's worth it. He gives fulfillment and enduring satisfaction. And at the end of this life, we'll, we'll have everlasting life and eternal reward. Praise God. Ladies and gentlemen, xgaywitness.com, Matthew Karchner. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, sir. And listeners, please be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode after listening. And for you Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. dream.